everybody. This is Heidi St. John. Today is Tuesday, the 17th of May. I'm glad you've joined me. This is Off the Bench. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad you guys are here. As most of you know, I am running for Congress in the state of Washington. This is a very important week. Uh, filled with a lot of interviews, and we're talking to people all across Congressional District 3. And so I've taken a couple of days off of recording brand new content, and yesterday and today we're going to do some of my favorites and rerun them for you. I want to just encourage you as much as I can to get involved in what is happening in our country. This is an incredible time for freedom. It's an important time for us to be engaged both uh, in prayer and physically as we run for office, as we try to encourage people to get off the bench and onto the battlefield. That's certainly what we're doing here at the podcast. And it's what I am doing in the ministry that God has given me and also in my run for the U.S. House of Representatives. So uh, to that end, today we're gonna air one more of my favorite reruns for you. I hope you guys enjoy it. Have a great day. And I will see you back here tomorrow with some fresh new content. If you think for yourself and you say something that goes against the mainstream media or the narrative that they're putting out there, that the constant, you know, the the drumbeat of, of fear and all of those things, boy, I'll tell you what, they're going to take you off social media. They're going to uh, malign you in the public square, certainly where opinions are concerned. And I'm watching more and more individuals now starting to go, wait a second, why am I even doing this? They don't even know why they're doing it. They're not thinking for themselves. My my thinking, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, I believe it's fear. as it, That's the root of it. What say you? Well, everybody is afraid uh, to, to dif- dissent from the crowd, right? And this right. is just human, human nature. We, we don't want to stand out. We, we become af- afraid to to take a stand if it's going to make us hated, especially if it's going to cost us our job. And mm-hmm. this is just human nature. I I used to be so judgmental of my parents' generation because I'm I'm in the deep south. I'm from South Louisiana. I live here now, and uh, I could I was the first generation to go through racially integrated public schools in my state, and. I used to be so judgmental about my parents' generation. How could they have stood by and allowed segregation to, to happen? happen. Yeah. Right. It just seemed crazy to me. But then the, as I got older, the more I thought about it, well, if I had been living in that town, in my own hometown during the segregation years, it would have required immense courage mm. as a white person to stand up and say, this is wrong. You would have had the entire community come down on your head. And I'm not saying it's right to have been quiet about it. I'm just saying that this, it really does become difficult to stand against the crowd. But what choice do we have? That's the thing. When I was over in the the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, the former Soviet bloc, people would tell me, Christians I interviewed who had been dissidents, they said, you mustn't think that all Christians were like this. Most everybody kept their heads down to avoid trouble. It was only the rare Christian who dared to stand up. But mm. people like the the Benda family I mentioned earlier in Prague, I mean, that whole family stood up because they knew that this wasn't just about their politics. This was about their soul. Yeah. I, I asked uh, Camilla, the mom, um, I said, how did you prepare your children? They had like six kids. How did you prepare your children to resist and to hold on to their Catholic faith? And she said, you know, because her husband had told, would teach the kids about what's going on in the world and the lies they were hearing in school and how to, how to detect those lies. She said that she read to them 
constantly, two hours a day, even though she was working. Her husband was in prison as a political prisoner for some of that time, but she always read to them two hours a day. I said, Camilla, what did you read? She said, well, I read them the classics. I read them myths. I read them great literature. And I read a lot of Tolkien. Mm. I said, Tolkien? Why Tolkien? She looked at me straight in the eyes, Heidi, and she said, because we knew that Mordor was real. Mm. And this was her way of preparing her children who couldn't understand the complexity of what communism was, what totalitarianism was, but they could understand what it meant to resist evil and what it meant to make fellowship with other people, other good people, and to fight the good fight. And she would tell her kids, kids, this is what mom and dad are doing. This is what our friends are doing. And that was how she built them up internally built their consciences up. And this is the same sort of thing we have to do here in America. You know, we have to give our children these stories of things that are good, true, and beautiful, so they will be able to apply these stories, to take them into their hearts and apply them in the real world. Yeah. And that's that's what we're going to have to get him ready for. I was talking to my uh, 24-year-old son the other day, and I was like, man, we have made a mess of things. I'm really sorry. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to try to right the ship, but I think you guys are in for some hard times. And that's just the truth. Just trying to say, hey, look at the cancel culture. Look what's going on around you. Uh, even my even my grown kids, many of them, you know, at their, at their, in their late 20s now, are starting to realize, boy, you speak the truth in the public square, and it can cost you. It really can right now. And so, the cost is real. But in your book, you've you've talked about some of the things that people can do uh, to resist, which is really, you know, the title of the book, Live Not by Lies. One of the things that really caught my attention was uh, see, judge, and act uh, toward the end of the book. What do you mean by that? Yeah, Father Kulikovich adopted this method, a very simple method that he taught his followers to help them get ready for communism. It's a three-part method, see, judge, and act. Uh, By see, he meant that they needed to come together and define the problem. Look around them. Don't lie to themselves about the situation, but face reality honestly. Define the problem. With judge, that was his term, meaning uh, for what they had to do when they would talk about among themselves how to bring Scripture and their church's teaching to understanding the problem and deciding what do we do about it? What is God calling us to do about it? And of course, act is to leave the room and then go go forth ready to put that into action. It can't be just theory. You have to put it into action. And some of the things they did was uh, they, they learned uh, not only the Bible, but they also learned how to resist brainwashing, you know, and, and this was very, very important for them because in 1951, all of Father Kolakovich's top leaders of his uh, of his Christian groups were thrown in prison, mm. and they had to get ready for it. Mm-hmm. So, see, judge, and act is a simple thing that we can all do, but uh, it was a formal way of getting these groups when they would come together, not just to sit around and talk and talk and talk and never go anywhere. But it was about what can we do practically and concretely, and leave this room right now and put into action. And I would love it if we would have groups like this come together around churches or within churches or across church communities to start uh, talking about the things we're seeing happen in this culture and get ourselves in the habit of analyzing and figuring out what we can do together to make ourselves resilient. One thing that this uh, guy I was telling you about earlier, a friend of mine who is retired from military intelligence, he said that Christians have got to figure out a way to communicate among ourselves 
in ways that are not electronic. Uh, yes. because, so they, you know, it's stuff, it sounds like cloak and dagger stuff, but this is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to find ourselves very quickly in a situation where we're going to have to be able to do that. And we need to be able to plan this out right now before the emergency. Yeah. And I, and I do think this is why it's so important, why I've been telling people go out and get the book, because I do think we're in a moment right now. We, we have a moment when we can prepare our children, a moment we, when we can steal ourselves, really. Uh, you know, that resolve, that resolve to tell the truth. At one point in the book, you know, you're, you quote uh, Solzhenitsyn quite a bit, uh, obviously, because he refused to live by lies. And one of the things that he said, you know, in ways of telling people how not to live by lies, he said, we will not write or say or affirm or distribute anything that distorts the truth. We will not go to demonstration or participate in a collective action unless we truly believe in the cause. We won't take part in a meeting in which the discussion is forced or no one can speak the truth. These were kind the kinds of things that he was what he was saying to those people who were following him to say, there are things that you can do. You're not as powerless as the propaganda would make you think you are. Yeah, that's how the communists control people too. They divided people against each other and made everybody feel that they were all alone and without power. Uh, this this fellow I mentioned earlier, Václav Benda, the guy in uh, in Prague, he had this. Uh, he knew that he it was pointless to get involved in politics because this was a communist totalitarian state. But he believed that just bringing people together, his neighbors together for a meal or for anything mm-hmm. small, was a political act because. It fought back against the government's uh, desire to keep everybody separate and afraid of each other. So they had to kind of rebuild slowly the idea that we are part of a community. We don't have to be afraid of each other. These simple acts like that don't seem political, but they really are in a good way. Yeah. And right now, especially, I mean, look what's happened because of the pandemic. I mean, I I continue to believe that they have weaponized this thing, absolutely politicized it. But here in my little uh, neck of the woods, early on, uh, the local sheriff, I mean, I'm living in you know, a relatively small town outside of Portland, Oregon. And the sheriff here set up a snitch site and said, you know, if you see anybody outside of their house with more than three cars, if you don't recognize this is where you turn them in, I'm telling you what, yep. what that did to people in the grocery stores, what that did to neighbors. I I think it's going to, I mean, I'm not exaggerating to say, I think it's going to take us a decade to get over it. Yeah, I think you might be right. And you know, too, we're seeing uh, on social media culture, kids are being incentivized to turn their parents in. Yep. Uh, Claudia Conway, that rotten little daughter of Kellyanne Conway and George Conway, you know, trashing her mother on social media, trying to get her arrested. Uh, there was that kid out in uh, out in Washington, I think, Washington or Oregon, whose mom went to the Stop the Steal March in Washington. She doxed her mom and all her family members on media. And everybody was came out on social media and said, oh, God bless you. You're so great. You're turning in your bigoted parents. This is something out of the Soviet years. Yep. You know, the, the idea that kids would, would turn on their parents for political reasons and set their parents up to lose their jobs and to and to be uh, become pariahs. Yeah. But here we are all for ideology. I mean, yeah. it's it's incredible. And, you know, uh, Heidi, one thing I wanted to say for sure is that the most important lesson I learned from interviewing dissidents, uh, Christian dissidents under communism was the importance of suffering. They said that if you aren't prepared to suffer, 
for the sake of the faith, you're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. I remember standing on a street corner in Moscow in the light snow um, in the fall of 2019, talking to this old Baptist pastor, Russian Baptist pastor. And uh, mind you, the Russian Baptists had it worse than just about any other Christian because they were hated by the Orthodox too. But uh, he told me, he said, you know, we have got to be prepared to give everything, even our lives for Christ. Nothing else will do. If you're not prepared to do that, you will capitulate. And this this lesson I heard over and over and over again. And uh, I think that this is the essence of why the soft totalitarians will succeed with most of us, because we are so afraid of hardship. We're afraid even of anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's true. And I mean, I think I, I can't remember the statistic at the moment, but I did a, a podcast on anxiety and depression in the United States right now. And it is amazing how many people are on anti-anxiety medications, how many it's and also very interesting to note in the middle of this pandemic, uh, they they went out of their way to keep the pot shops open around here out of their way to make sure that alcohol was in full supply. You know, we might close down the uh, the mom and pop shops, but we're not going to close down the liquor dealerships. It's this way of sort of numbing people to what's happening around them. And it plays into our uh, desire to be comfortable. We want comfort over freedom. We want comfort and safety over just about anything. And it seems like we've been uh, really primed for this. You know, just uh, that's why I mean when I say that they weaponized COVID, I feel like, boy, they saw it. They saw an opportunity to sort of test the limits of what the what the culture will and won't put up with. And they have discovered that we'll put up with just about anything. Uh, if we can, if we think we can be safe and comfortable. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, you know, the thing that we have got to recover as Christians is the value of suffering, you know, Mm. that Jesus himself suffered on the cross, uh, and he is our model. There is no way to get through life without some kind of suffering. And it's not that we should uh, look forward to it, seek it out, but if it comes, we have to learn how to accept it as Christians. I, I tell the story in the book, uh, Live Not By Lies, of Dr. Sylvester Kuchmeri. He was a young follower of Father Kolakovich, who was thrown in prison in 1951 by the communists. And he wrote in a memoir late in his life that um, he was terrified, but he also had to realize that this was an honor and a privilege to suffer in this way for Christ. And he said as soon as he got into prison, he had to make the a firm resolution within himself that he was never going to feel sorry for himself. He was rather going to see everything that happened to him as being sent by God as an opportunity for him to deepen his own conversion and his own discipleship and to love and help others. And that's mm-hmm. what got him through 10 years of prison. In a similar way, this guy, I tell the story in the book, Alexander Ogorodnikov, he was uh, from a very prominent communist family, but he left it all behind in the early 70s and became a Christian. Well, the Soviets put him in prison in 1978. They put him on death row, even though he didn't have a death sentence, because they wanted to teach him a lesson. And uh, he went in there and started witnessing to uh, 
to prisoners, some of the hardest prisoners in all of Russia. And uh, eventually they moved him into solitary confinement and he got really depressed after a while and began to doubt whether God really had a plan for him being there. And then he began to have visions at night. God would send angels to him and the angels would show him. I tell the story in the book, the angels would show him prisoners being led from behind with their with their uh, arms uh, handcuffed by guards to their execution. And uh, Ogrodnikov came to understand that these were men with whom he had shared the gospel and who were going to be executed, but they were going to be with Christ in paradise mm-hmm. forever because he had witnessed to them. And that helped Ogorodnikov understand that God had a plan, that all his suffering meant something. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this has been so powerful to me during COVID uh, uh, when I'm, I'm sitting here at home and I'm getting overwhelmed by just when will this end? This yeah. is so depressing. And I think that God is sending this to us as an opportunity for us to prepare for what's coming, to deepen our own conversion and to learn how to abide, you know, and this is, mm-hmm. this is what we have. These are, these are skills that we have to learn spiritual skills right now, because if we think COVID is bad, just wait. Mm-hmm. It's true. Well, the, the groundwork, and you so rightly point this out, uh, the groundwork for totalitarianism in our country has already been laid. And for people to, I think, wake up to that, uh, to to start to say, okay, what can we do? Uh, so much of it is just waking up. We don't have a theology for suffering. The church does not have a theology for suffering. We never have, uh, at least in the modern church. And uh, we're getting, we have a window right now to really talk to our kids about what it means to stand up and uh, and to uh, to prepare for what's coming. One thing I want to touch on really quickly before we end, because I've talked about this a lot on the show, but I felt like you just nailed it. You understand social justice. And uh, I called it um, heresy in the church. A couple of weeks ago, I did a whole podcast on it. You called social justice a cult. And I'm just really quickly in the few minutes that we have left. uh, Why did you choose? Because I think I can see how it how it fits into totalitarianism because it plays right along with it. That's, you know, it's like the song or the drumbeat of totalitarianism. Why did you choose to talk about social justice in Live Not By Lies? Well, because that is a central, that's a central plank of the totalitarian platform. Mm-hmm. They believe that they are going to bring justice, perfect justice to this country. If they just um, get enough people fired, change the language and bully enough people into silence. It is like a religion, Heidi, because uh, and this is something that came to me when I was researching the Bolsheviks, the history of the Russian Revolution. I came to understand Bolshevism as being like a political religion, just like um, apocalyptic cults of the past. They believed that there was going to be a, a showdown between good and evil. There was going to be blood, and then the good would triumph over the evil ones and and recreate paradise on earth. Uh, but in the Bolshevik mindset, this had to do, of course, with com- the communist totalitarian dictatorship. They thought that was going to be paradise. In a similar way, the social justice warriors in our culture, they seem to believe that all the evil in the world is caused by people by, who are members of bad groups, whites, males, Christians, conservatives. And if we can only exterminate, not literally, I hope, but if we can get rid of these bad people, 
then goodness and perfect justice will reign forever. And uh, this never happens. It's this crazy utopian thinking, but they're going to end up causing a lot of damage if they are not stopped. And I, I think that the one of the biggest things that we Christians have to realize and not let this come into our churches, our mm-hmm. faith teaches us that every single one of us is broken and in sin yes. and in need of a savior. Yeah. Right. And Solzhenitsyn said when he came out of the gulag, he said one of the things the gulag taught him was that the line between good and evil runs not between classes, as the Bolsheviks taught, or between races, but right down the middle of every human heart. And mm. uh, that is such a profound teaching. And uh, I, I think that we have to meet social justice, the social justice warriors in that same way with that teaching and resist them. On the other hand, I have to say this, and I do talk about this in Live Not By Lies. Uh, I was at a, having dinner with a family in Moscow, a Christian family, uh, and I had been interviewing people a couple days prior to that dinner, and, and I just blurted out at the beginning of the meal, I don't understand why anybody in this country ever fell for what the Bolsheviks had to offer. Mm. The father at the end of the table said, you want to know? And he went back. 400 years and started telling me the history of his country very quickly about how the czars uh, oppressed the poor and the church was part of it too, oppressing the poor. And by the time they got to the end of the 19th century, the poor were willing to believe anything that gave them a sense of hope that their, their suffering would be over. And of course, when the communists came in, they made it even worse. But the father's point was that, uh, that we can't ignore suffering that makes people uh, want to reach out to radicals, you know, and accept these false promises. So if there is real suffering in this country that causes people to reach out for the the wrong, uh, the, the false solution of social justice, then we as Christians, as conservatives, uh, need to be aware of that and help help people understand why these solutions are false and also, though, take their concerns seriously. Mm, it's so important. And to be learning, I, I love that you, uh, the book has really centered around learning from people who have already lived through this, lived through communism, lived through Marxism, uh, and uh, lived through Bolshevism. And, and definitely, you know, we've been reading to our kids about social justice, telling my kids, you know, for a long time, listen, social justice and biblical justice are not the same thing. And why it's ended up in our churches demonstrates that we don't know the word of God. And so these people come into our churches, they, they preach this thing that that sounds really good on its face. But then when you hold it up to the light of scripture, you know, in Micah 6, 8, to love justice and mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord, we know that man's justice will never compare to God's justice. And so when we move to man's justice, we move away from the justice of God. This is just how human beings are. That's why uh, what you're saying is so correct. When we say it's the human heart right down the middle that we uh, that we battle with every single day. And uh, you've done such a beautiful job of pointing that well, I, I could talk to you for another hour, but I know you got things to do. Uh, Rod Dreyer, it has been a joy to have you. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for what you're doing in uh, trying to wake people up and get them off the bench and onto the battlefield. Heidi, thank you so much for having me on. This is so important that we make common cause with each other. You know, one, one thing that I learned from talking to these people is that uh, when all of them were sent into the gulags and to the prisons by the communists. There were Orthodox Christians there, there were Catholics, there were Protestants, but they all found common cause because they knew that they had been thrown in prison 
not because they were Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant, but because they were followers of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of brotherhood that um, I hope to encourage in uh, my readers. Well, it's a it's a wonderful, uh, important uh, work that you've done, and I hope it does well. I hope it just uh, I hope you you take the country by storm with this book because I honestly think it's the wake up call that we need. And uh, I'd love to you know things are changing rapidly. I'd love to have you back again and uh, just get your get get your perspective. Happy to come back anytime. So thanks for tuning in today, you guys. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Rod Dreher. I will link back to his book in the show notes today. And uh, as always, I'm going to encourage you, if you can get the book from your local independent bookstore, please do that. Amazon doesn't need your money. I do realize it's much easier to use Amazon, but they don't need your money. And these uh, these smaller bookstores, they really, really do. So uh, I hope you guys are enjoying this. I want to remind you again that we are in the middle of an awesome Bible study at MomStrong International with my friend Jennifer Strickland. We're calling it Beautiful lies and uh, we're finding out who we are in Christ. And it's been more important now that we know who we are so we can pass on the truth of who we are to our children. I appreciate you guys listening today, everybody. And I will see you back here tomorrow at the intersection of faith and culture.